Welcome to Secrets to Selling Your Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners looking to unlock the secrets behind successful business transitions. Join our host, Jacob Koenig, a partner at Woodbridge International, as he gives you the knowledge to navigate complexities, embrace strategic shifts, and prepare you to sell your business with no regrets. At Woodbridge, we know how to give you the wisdom to achieve your ultimate success. And now, here's your host, Jacob Koenig. Right, welcome to the show. Today, we have with us Randolph Ewing. He's the founding partner of Ewing & Jones Law Firm. Randolph, thanks so much for joining us. Jacob, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Again, thanks uh, Thanks for coming on. I mean, for everyone's knowledge, we actually were just working together. We just closed a, uh, a deal together. So we're excited for, for that. It was a great success. And um a lot of thanks to uh, to Randolph and team for for your part in that. Yeah, Jacob. Yeah, if I comment on that, the business that was sold was based in Florida, and I'm here in Houston, Texas, and you're up in Connecticut, and we hadn't heard of each other. And interestingly, the founder of that business that just got sold in 2023, I'd been engaged to sell a predecessor business in 2005. And never, we didn't have Teams and Zoom and all that stuff. So talked on the phone many times, but had never met this gentleman. Out of the blue, he called me and asked me to help look at an engagement letter with Woodbridge that would help market his company. So I did that. So we were on the opposite side there for a little bit. And then Woodbridge did a phenomenal job working with me, helping sell this successor. is a little different business, but... This company came back and asked me after working with them 18 years before to help them sell this company. So I was real pleased with Woodbridge uh, being on every call and rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty and helping the seller put together a transaction in a way that protects them. And, and schedule disclosure is a major part of that. And that takes a lot of effort and it's distracting to the business owners who want to run their business and not talk to Investment yeah. bankers and lawyers. So <laughs> yes, we met earlier this year, and I was very pleased with all y'all's efforts on that. Yeah, and and same goes to uh, to you from us. I think uh, you know it's it's one of the the questions whenever we are engaged with a new law firm, it it raises some alarm bells for us. Uh, we always want to make sure that our relationship with our clients' legal team is is a good one because oftentimes we do see incentives misaligned you know we always want to close the deal get it get it done as fast as possible as fast as as can be um we do say that time kills deals and and we know that you know lawyers do have uh, their billable hours they need to hit and uh, and huh. we respect that but uh, obviously we want to work together to to make sure that we're getting the deal done well same thing investment bankers get involved in the transaction and find the deal and source the buyer if you will and as an attorney, me and my firm are on the sell side two-thirds of the time, maybe three-fourths of the time. And the first thing I do when I get involved is who's the law firm on the other side? And occasionally, if you're buying a business in a small town in Louisiana or Texas, and it's the local wills and estates litigation probate lawyer, that you don't like doing a transaction with M&A lawyers, merger and acquisition lawyers know what they're supposed to be doing. And unfortunately, small town lawyers don't really get involved too much in business transactions. And then they argue about things or negotiate things that they shouldn't. 
and they don't talk about things they should just because they don't have the experience. So you always want a professional lawyer on the other side who you can negotiate all the allocation risk issues. And a key part of all this, probably majority of the time, the companies I represent that were selling, they've never sold a company before, nor have they ever bought a company. And they'll say, well, my business is clean. I'm not real worried about that. And then you can give hypotheticals. And I've been practicing merger acquisition work for 45 years. You give hypotheticals and it's not what you know, it's what you don't know. Probably every business is violating some law of some sort. And the question is, who takes the risk of the unknown? And that's what the negotiation is all about. And I think my job is as a lawyer is to communicate with the client and make sure they understand the process. Yeah. And it's always wonderful to have an investment banking firm helping with that. And then secondly, to make sure that we're understanding what the risk is and who should take the risk and try to get it in the middle of the fairway, so to speak, if you're a golfer, not way one-sided for the yeah. buyer and nobody does a paper so napkin deal if you're a, if you're a seller. In our process, we definitely were focused on that. And I think that's something we always try to do. We definitely respect that expertise and the 45 years of experience you have obviously was was forefront in this transaction to understand what are the norms. Everyone knows what they should be and where they, where those, as you said, what's right down the fairway. That's really what we're aiming for. We want something fair, something reasonable. We're not trying to, you know, hoodwink and and win a negotiation necessarily. Right. And I'll make this comment too, in the late seventies and through the eighties, people 80% of the time pass their companies on to their sons and daughters. And, And now where we are now, the probably 80% of the time, the baby boomers who own these companies, and of course they could have started themselves. They're looking to the next generation saying, no, I'm going to sell the company. And there's so much private equity money out there and strategic buyers and I'll set up trusts and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And there's just a lot of transactions out there. And the other comment is the transactions are more seller friendly than they were before. Just a simple example is if you sold a business for $50 million, the capital identification was $50 million back in the 70s and 80s. Now you sell business for $50 million. The capital and liability is maybe $5 million or $10 million. And the reason that pendulum swung, I think, is because private equity funds that buy companies, guess what? Five years from now, they want to sell those companies. And they don't, they want to minimize their risk. And so as a merger and acquisition lawyer, you get studies and seminars about the trends on a lot of issues about representations, warranties, survival time periods, deductibles, tipping basket thresholds, and all that kind of stuff. You know, really, it's up to ultimately, if you communicate, it's up to your client to determine how risk averse or risk tolerant they are. I'm not signing the paperwork. I give advice, try to get the best position. And they'll typically, as you build up a relationship, say, what would you recommend or what would you do? And I can give them my answer, but it's not my business. And if you're comfortable, you can. It is those market norms, though, as you said, right? Exactly. Norms change over time. But the fact is, it's up to us as the advisors to educate our clients. This is what's what's normal, what's expected and whether or not that matches your individual. Exactly. That's the conversation we need to have. You're exactly right. But I think it's really interesting, as you said, to and and for our our audience who is not as familiar with all these terms to understand a little bit about these representations and 
you know, the, the fact is there are fundamental reps, which uh, the fact that I own the business, you know, this is my business. I did start it. I do own the shares. Those types of things are fundamental. That would be capped at the total purchase price. That is true. And that's a, yeah, we're getting in a little detail there, but, and I'd have seen, and I probably work on 20 acquisitions a year. I've seen one time where a fundamental representation was breached and it was back in the nineties. And it's when the seller forgot that they had given an option to buy equity 10% of the company and it's 20 years later. And that person comes out of the woodwork when the company gets sold saying, I'm supposed to get 10% of this. Well, of course, that 10% owner didn't sign any paperwork, didn't take the risks and this, but it was a, you need to know your business and schedule disclosures are very important. If you disclose it, you're not liable, but if you forget, and then after the fact, the buyer finds some problem or you didn't disclose in your breach of the representation, then there can be a clawback, typically with an escrow or a promissory note, clawback of the purchase price. And so you want the buyer to, you want the seller to know when they sell their company for $50 million that they can sleep at night and it's not at risk in the typical escrow amount, nobody says, here's $50 million, see you later, goodbye. The typical escrow amount would be 5 to 10% of the purchase price. Let's say it's $5 million. You're going to get it in a year, assuming you don't have breaches of representations and warranties. But you want to know that you did all the work to look at every representation and warranty and read it three times and get the schedules exactly right. So then you're not going to risk the $5 million being clawed back on. And again, you know, having the knowledge, having the experience to be able to go through what are the norms and what what are the things that are worth arguing about versus, uh, you know, you don't want to be stuck going back and forth with red lines over and over again on everything. You want to focus on the ones that actually do have risk, that actually right. do have an importance to the client. You're right. Uh, it, not Jacob, you use the word argue, and that touches uh, something near and dear to my heart, which is I would say as a transaction lawyer, uh, 95% of the lawyers I deal with on the other side are very professional. Yeah. They probably know what I'm going to try to negotiate. Yeah. I probably know what they're going to negotiate. And you go through this process. And at the end of the day, everybody, when you close a transaction, it's as simple as transaction is not simple. But at the end of the day, it's like when you go buy a car for $50,000, do you walk away mad or do you walk away happy? The answer is you walk away happy because you value that car that you voluntarily transferred $50,000 to buy. Yeah. Guess what? Is the dealer mad? No. The dealer's happy. The dealer wants your $50,000 more than the car on his or her lot. Absolutely. And so it's at the end of the day, and it takes two, three, four months when you get the lawyers involved, you close. Yeah. And most closings now with Teams and Zoom and all are what are called virtual closings. You do it by phone calls or teams calls, release signatures, wire transfers happen. And everybody's congratulating everybody because there's a lot of hard work, sometimes till two in the morning or whatever, to get all the issues taken care of and resolved. But everybody's happy. And I call it win-win. Litigation is win-lose or lose-lose. Only the lawyers win. And it goes on for years. Guess what? The plaintiff's mad as heck because... He thinks the defendant has something that he should get. The defendant's mad as heck because the plaintiff is making the defendant 
spend a bunch of money with lawyers to preserve whatever it is the defendant has that the defendant thinks he should be entitled to have. Then it goes, it's hostile and it goes on years and years. And it's be win-win. So the profession I'm in, it's just a lot more positive and uplifting. And it's very fun for me to have, there's a lot of M&A lawyers in the United States and whatnot. But it's very fun for me for a lawyer, for a business person to call me, heard my name because their buddy at the right. golf club two years ago used Randolph Ewing to sell their company. Hey, I'm thinking about selling my company. Who do you recommend? Yeah. And that person, I'd help them take their baby that they might have worked with for 30 years to grow it into this enormous company right. and turn it in. They're voluntarily saying, I want to liquidate my company and turn it into what it's worth and retire. And another comment I'd make to that, we've got estate planning lawyers here, is I highly recommend talking to your estate planning lawyers if you're going into this process and do it before you sell the company. You can tax advantage yourself better potentially. Do you want to set up trust? Do you want to give money to your favorite church or charity or school or synagogue, or whatever it is you want to do, and figure out your planning so that when you, three or four months from now, get all this money, maybe you've assigned interest to other charities you're interested in beforehand. So I highly recommend if you're going to turn your company, which is illiquid, into a pile of cash, think about your estate plan. Yeah, I mean, we do see this type of thing holding up deals. Uh, and that's certainly not the place you want to be. It's much better to have your ducks in a row before you reach out to a Randolph or a Woodbridge. And, you know, it is a tremendous responsibility, I feel, that we bear um, working with business owners. It is oftentimes their baby, their everything, um, their life's work uh, that they're entrusting to us. Yeah. And to to have that responsibility in our minds as we go out and, and seek the best outcome yeah, it's 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 something real, and it's something that I know you uh, certainly value as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Another comment. This is not a legal comment, but when somebody's worked twelve hours a day, six days a week, and maybe they sell their company and they stay on for three months transition, maybe a year transition, but at some point they suddenly are not needed or wanted, or ah, I'm going to go retire. Mm-hmm. Well. The grass may look greener on the other side, but I've seen people after they're so used to always being needed, always just so critical and important Mm -hmm. that the planning your personal life and figuring out what am I going to do? Am I going to, I've had people call three months later and say, I'm bored to death. My brain's turning to mush. I'm not challenged. Do you have any companies I can buy or do you have any boards I can serve on to challenge my and keep active because I can't go cold turkey from working 60 hours a week and responsibility of of this company to suddenly nobody needs me or wants me and some people are prepared for that and they can shut it off but some people that's true do not I mean you take some driven football coach like Paul Bear Bryant was he died within the first year because suddenly he's retired and I'm not saying it goes hand in hand but you need to personally think about what am I going to do if I'm not continuing to stay and work at that company? It's also easier to sell your company if you've got that plan in place for what happens once I've exited. Um, Yeah, exactly. One of the key questions I asked somebody 
it's kind of personal, but I'll say there's a company I'm working on selling right now. And the guy's first name is Greg. And I'll mm -hmm. say, Greg, what happens to your company before we sell and consummate? What happens to your company, knock on wood, if you die today? Is the value going down 20% or it's not going to skip a beat? And of course, it's an ego trip to them because they got to go, well, that's a good question. Yeah. You, know, you want to say, well, yeah. it's going to be terrible without me. But the flip side is to sell the company, you want the buyer yeah. to know the company's going to do just fine without you. Maybe it'll hurt a little bit and it helps the sales price because if the buyer's sitting there thinking, Greg is so critical to the continued success of this exactly. company exactly. and we've made him fat, dumb and happy by handing him uh, <laughs> right. $40 million yeah. and he retains a little bit of equity yeah. to incentivize him to work. You know, unless he's honorable or slavery got abolished in 1863. You can't, I've never seen a lawsuit where the buyer requires the seller to sign an employment agreement exactly. and you're going to stay for the next three years and help things go along. Well, the buyer spent a bunch of money to change the culture. And if the seller, this happened several times, the seller is saying, why are they, they're stupid. Why are they changing the culture? This is ridiculous. I hate it. I can't, I yeah. quit. Right. I just had somebody leave this Monday from a deal in Pennsylvania that yeah. he'd been there a year and a half. He just didn't like not being his own boss. And there's just a lot of issues to think about that I think a key question to ask for That's you and us is what happens if you, the owner, die? We want to sell it for, we want to portray that it's all going to be great. Too bad, you know, this, that's unfortunate. If you're critical to the whole thing, the buyer's going to take that into account. How's right. the buyer yeah, going to make The buyer's going to say, yeah. you need to have more skin in the game going forward yeah. in own part of the company. So those are some of the issues, yeah. too. And, and you know, Randolph, firsthand, I mean, you you yourself have uh, have been a business owner in the past, correct? And, and have an MBA. How has that framed your view? And, and how Well, yeah, I like to think call it the smell test. Uh, yes, I know numbers and financial statements and business thinking and this, that, and the other. But the more experience you have, the more you see stuff. I have a lot of wealthy clients that come to me and say, I'm thinking about investing $5 million in this transaction. What do you think? And I'll look at it and it's legal business standpoint. Yeah, I'm on the board of some companies Interestingly, I own part of the Snapple distributorship here in Houston with some of the Houston Oilers football players in the 90s before we sold that and it went public. I owned part of the ice hockey team down here in the Summit, which became the Compact Center where the pro basketball and hockey teams played. And it, it was fun for me to have monthly board meetings, not as a lawyer billing by the hour, but as an owner and a board member giving my perspective and advice and overseeing what's going on. So I like to think not only legal experience, I'd like to think I have some practical business experience. Excellent. Yeah, and I think you know, having that certainly gives you some credence when you're when you're recommending a course of action to a client that uh, that they know that you have the knowledge and experience to to really stand behind it. Absolutely. And I'll say this too, it doesn't matter how great the paperwork is that you write if the other side is going to pull a fraud or do right. something. It doesn't matter what the paperwork says. And ultimately, I made this comment this morning to Greg, whose company we're selling at the end of November, which is nobody's going to read your employment agreement going forward 
unless there's a problem. Yeah. And then everybody's going to go back and read it and say, why did we agree to that? Or why didn't we talk about that? Mm -hmm. Right. My job is to tell you all these what if scenarios that I've seen happen. And if you want to take the risk, oh, they wouldn't do that. Fine. But if you want to protect against it, I'll draft two sentences and we'll separate the men from the boys and the ladies from the girls. And why can't they agree to it in writing if they'd never do to it? Yeah. They, they have no answer to that. So mm -hmm. you're not insulting. I like to prevent problems by getting all the what if scenarios that realistically could happen mm -hmm. in the document. So everybody knows where things are supposed to go. Greg's going to keep owning part of this company he's selling. So right. we talked about yep. what happens if, if you get fired for cause, which mm -hmm. is not worried about. What happens if you quit without good reason? Right. What happens if they fire you without cause? You know, all those issues that go hand in hand. Right. So some sellers sell 100%, mm -hmm. some sell 80% and keep 20 or, you know, yeah. it's different, different scenarios. To be able to get all those ducks in a row and, and know that there's not going to be regret. That's the key. And that's what we always. Uh, you bet. So, Jacob, can we wrap up here? Because I'm speaking. Yes, yep. This, uh, that was all I had actually uh, planned to ask you here. So I, I love talking to you. I've Same the deal world toward the end of the year is getting busy and somebody's summoning me to get on a okay. 1030 central call. So. Thank you for your time and reaching yeah. out. And again, thank you, Woodbridge, for being so phenomenal to work with. And I uh, look forward to working with you guys soon. Appreciate that. Same here. Thanks okay. so much. Okay. Good right talk on. to you. Thanks, Jacob. Happy holidays. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Secrets to Selling Your Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners looking to unlock the secrets behind successful business transitions. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guest and their insights. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.